Hi guys, Russell here, uh, doing my uh, a podcast for this from uh, beautiful Czech Republic. Uh, I'm here for Kanye with my son. But there's this an idea that I've been thinking about for a while, and I've had some time now to think about. So one of the things is, uh, and you see this recurring, is that the strength of the US dollar is generally being a surprise to macro investors, in my view. There are certain thinkers out there who have theories for it, but the theories that I find uh, generally are not very uh, good in that they have no predictive power. They just say, this is why the dollar is strong, uh, and without sort of you know, any idea of how it could end or if it's going to continue, it just looks at sort of current financial structures, which I find very, uh, to, for my mind, not very satisfying. Uh, if the theory doesn't predict anything, what's the point of it, in my view? And so, you know, the dollar is being strange. You know, if you look at... Uh, uh, concepts like the twin deficits, if you're not familiar with that, it's the adding of the current account deficit and the fiscal deficit together. Uh, and it used to be used quite extensively to explain dollar weakness back in the 70s and 80s, uh, and even in the 2000s. It points to significant weakness in the dollar now, but we have yet to see it. Um, and as I pointed out in previous posts, what you've also seen is things like terms of trade. Uh, we used to work very well on currencies particularly currencies like the Aussie dollar, uh, seem to have failed in recent years. Uh, and what you've also seen in Australia is a country that never used to run uh, trade surpluses now runs ginormous trade surpluses because the currency has not moved with the terms of trade. So you've got a lot of weird things going on in the currency markets from a macros perspective. Uh, I, myself, was a heavy user of uh, net international investment position. What I really liked it, it liked about that is it, it actually picked up problems in Japan in the 90s and also picked up problems with Europe in the sort of 2000s, 2010s. But the problem with it uh, in recent years is that if you look at the sort of US net international investment position, it is absolutely staggeringly large and has continued to widen. And if I use that, and I did, you know, it sort of led you to being bearish on the dollar and U.S. equities in around 2016, 17 or so, which has been incorrect. And so you got the lowly sort of classic macro uh, sort of uh, signals of failing, and they're failing quite badly, which is probably why a lot of macro guys seem very, very confused. So how can we explain the failure of these macro indicators? So recently, and now I'm on the road uh, with a lot of free time, I've been thinking about this concept of American empire. All right. Uh, so normally when you say empire, you think like the British Empire where they turn up in their ships, uh, kill a few people or a lot of people, uh, and then take direct control uh, of the land uh, or even set up a colony. Um, and, you know, and that, so you still have this purely political angle. But actually, if you look at a lot of empires, but the British Empire or even the Japanese sort of empire uh, that existed pre-World War II, a lot of it is focused around profitable trading or access to resources. Now, what we're seeing, and so that was the old empire, and so what you used to have, particularly in the British Empire, is all the value-add trade was directed back to the UK. So, for example, in India, uh, there was this idea of deindustrialization where they sent raw materials to the UK, which then turned into uh, textiles, which then re-exported back to India. So all the high value-add was sent, sent back to the capital, if that makes sense. Um, and if you look at someone like the East India Company, that was definitely a trading company. It began as a trading company and then took over control of India slowly but surely. Um, now, the thing is, post-World War II, 
independence and anti-imperialism has really been the norm. Uh, you know, the Soviet Union is a bit of a weird exception to that because uh, the heart of communism is definitely uh, anti-imperialism, but we'll leave that to the side for the moment. And so if you look at the number of nations or independent nations the world has really bloomed. So in 1945, there were 50 members of the United Nations. Now we have around 193. And generally, the idea of invading another country to control it is largely gone. And this is assuming Russia's invasion of Ukraine fails here. So what is a new empire? What could an American empire look like or be? And so I'm thinking of the idea of wallet share, uh, you know, which is sort of based on trading. So when I look at my current life and compare it to 20 years ago, let's say, uh, the big difference is it's almost impossible for me not to send a large amount of money back to U.S. shareholders almost on a daily basis. So, for example, Substack is U.S.-based, so is Stripe, that handles the payments with Substack. Uh, all of the software, even though I'm using a Samsung phone uh, to make this, uh, all the software, all the main software is Google, again, U.S., uh, I do most of my banking with a U.S. Uh, bank. Uh, the credit cards are all, or my, my credit cards are on U.S. payment systems. These days, I watch the majority of my TV with Netflix, Disney Plus, or Amazon. And even my favorite uh, English Premier League f- football team is owned by Americans. Uh, and, you know, American corporations own a large number of the food and beverage companies I use. So you have this sort of, uh, my daily life, you know, uh, and the profits that that generates for other people is largely going straight back to the U.S. Um, you know, and that has really accelerated over the last 20 years, dramatically so. So is there some sort of comparison we can look at to see, you know, uh, of this sort of corporate empire building or market share? And the best I can come up, and this is in the sort of globalization period, which began in 1980, uh, and excluding the British Empire, uh, for example, is Japan. Now, for people of a certain age, i.e. my age, uh, so this is late 40s, you get on to 50s type age. If you go back to sort of the 80s and 90s, it was impossible uh, not to use or the Japanese uh, stuff. And what I mean by that is, you know, you, you, they dominated the semiconductor business, they dominated the oil business, they invented the PlayStation, so, you know, the home console business, you know, for Nintendo, a whole bunch of other things. The music business, so you think Walkman or cassette tapes with TDK, uh, and they basically destroyed incumbents everywhere. And often, either they would do it through exports, they build a factory, and then that factory would be sending its profits back to Japan. And what was really interesting about Japan as well, if you went uh, in the 80s or 90s, is that the difficulty that foreign corporations hadn't penetrated Japan. Maybe the sort of exceptions of Coca-Cola and McDonald's, but even then they faced huge competition from uh, Japanese domestic competitors. So if you make it Japan, I recommend trying Picari Sweat as a soft drink or going to Moss Burger as a burger joint. Um, so, you know, we've got this sort of, okay, market share, wallet share type story driving macro. So why is the macro data so different? So if you look at the Japanese sort of market share build that happened from the 60s through to the late 80s, what it was was very good heavy, goods heavy. So a lot of cars, a lot of shipbuilding, semiconductors, whatever, very goods heavy. Uh, and so that would very, very easy to measure and would definitely turn up in the trade data. And the other thing is that Japanese corporates tend to pay tax. Uh, in fact, back in the golden era of Japan uh, economic dominance, companies would be very proud about the amount of the tax they're paying back to the government. 
And so when you saw Japanese corporates dominate, you would see that also turn up in the macro data. Uh, and so f- during the boom years in Japan, they ran a, tr- a twin surplus for most of the time. So a budget surplus or a decent budget surplus and a strong current account surplus. And that drove a strong yen. All right. So very different to what we see in the States. But if we look at the States now, you see the same sort of domination, but a lot of it is, like I said, service-based. So, you know, when I'm using a MasterCard or a Visa, you know, they're taking their fee and that gets sent back to the corporates. Uh, But, you know, what you also see is that U.S. multinationals take huge advantage of tax arbitrage. I mean, there's a real strong reason why uh, there are so many U.S. pharmaceutical and technology companies based in Ireland. Uh, and there is a good reason why they tend to be much more profitable uh, in their overseas operations and the U.S. operations. So there's a huge tax arbitrage going on there. And then you combine it with what the recent sort of share buyback or issuing debt to buyback shares, you can see that U.S. corporate, corporate domination is not leading to uh, a trade surplus and is not leading to increased tax revenues uh, for the U.S. government. That is being captured elsewhere. Um, and so, you know, that is, I think, creating this sort of weird capital flow structure that is turning up in the net international investment position. You know, and you can also see in weirdly, you know, this booming U.S. economy, and yet the U.S. budget balance is at, you know, 7%, negative net 7%, right? Uh, you know, so what you gain is that the government is not capturing a lot of the tax benefits of the booming economy. Uh, it's also been seeping back into the corporate world. I think that's why so much of the data looks wrong. So what's interesting about that type of thinking is that it's sort of saying that there's not really a macro cycle, but just a business cycle. And it also probably explains why the Chinese yuan has been much better than what people expect. When you look at the sort of, uh, you look at Chinese companies and their competitiveness, they are actually competing with all the big U.S. corporates in almost all every, every area. And, you know, what's also interesting about China is you'd be an absolute, you'd have to be absolutely insane to even think about doing any sort of tax avoidance like U.S. corporates do. Uh, You know, the Chinese are very happy to jail you and even put you to death uh, for that type of stuff. So I I doubt there's any CFOs that would be willing to do that uh, in China. But when I look at it, you know, you can see that, you know, Chinese corporates compete very heavily and very well with U.S. corporates. Before Huawei got banned, it had better equipment uh, and was cheaper priced. TikTok is much cheaper and better than Instagram, for example. Uh, you could also see like Alipay and WePay offer a much better payment system than, than uh, MasterCard or Visa. Uh, and, you know, when you looked at the mobile phone operators uh, like Xiaomi and other guys, Oppo, who, uh, Oppo whatever, H-Brand, they all actually offered much better systems and were taking huge market share in emerging markets. And typically, they had much lower take rates on their app stores, around 15% compared to 30%. And so, you know, for me, one of the things is that when the security issues of China came up, uh, you know, for me, it seemed like a smokescreen to try and protect corporate profitability or U.S. corporate profitability. Well, also, what this analysis is saying is that Profits and security almost flip sides of the same coin. Um, so what this analysis is saying is that uh, is that uh, there's a better way of thinking about macro. Macro is actually driven by corporate profitability, technological innovation, other stuff. Uh, and actually that adds a big sort of, makes it a bit more interesting in that 
when energy prices soared uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine, we didn't see similar type of movement in uh, a lot of the sort of uh, oil-related currencies. And that maybe is because they're using an old technology while the U.S. has developed this new shale uh, technology. And so the, the, the market is sort of looking at these different technologies and saying the U.S. actually has a better one. And so does this really mean that in a capitalist, free market, globalized world, there is no real macro or credit cycle? There's only corporate profitability and technological cycle. And that, you know, if you're thinking about currencies, which for me, the ultimate macro trade, uh, you know, currencies will, own, will only strengthen for countries with, uh, with strong innovation and will tend to weaken with countries that have little or, or no innovation. So, for example, you know, currencies like the Mexican peso or Philippine peso have always tended to be weak currencies and continue to tend to be weak currencies, probably because they have relatively weak innovation, uh, which sort of makes for an interesting analysis of where do we put India on that? Is India, India super innovative or not? I know it has an outsourcing sector, uh, but is it innovative? I don't know. I think China is. I think China is far more innovative than people give it credit for but it's a very interesting area. So that's what I'm thinking about, and I think it's an area for further research. Um, I hope you found that interesting. Um, I hope the noise uh, pollution in the background wasn't too bad. Uh, I'll do more on this when I get back to London. Stay safe. We'll talk again soon. Ciao.